The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. And then turn in your copy of God's Word to Romans 8, 28. Romans 8, 28. One verse today. Uh, we're just picking up where we left off as we work our way through this book. If you've missed the previous weeks, they're available online. So we've been working our way through this greatest chapter. But today we just stop at the treasure of this verse. Many of you are already so familiar with it. And I pray that uh, today your affections will be stirred for the goodness and sovereignty of God. And if you're unfamiliar with the things of the Lord and the Bible, and I pray that you will be caught by the treasure of this verse. But speaking of being caught, let me just ask this question as you uh, uh, find the, the passage there. Um, when's the last time you played a good competitive game of tag? <laughs> Some of y'all are giving me the crazy eyes like, 25 years ago? I don't know. You know, the kids game, right? Where everybody's running around, you're, you know, you're trying to avoid that uh, person who's, uh, you know, whatever you call the person who you're trying to avoid, he or she is it. That's right. <laughs> it's a, and, and there's, uh, oftentimes when you're playing, there's this base where you're safe. And you're, you're trying to get there, you're trying to be safe. And, you know, there's all kinds of iterations of the game. There's freeze tag and there's multiple people in. Sometimes there's time limits on base, so you can't just go and, like, camp there for the whole game and, you know, uh, and, and not get tagged. But, uh, but it, it would, depending upon which game, there's the basic premise of every game of tag. You run around, you avoid someone, and you seek safety, whether it's in base or something else. That's the basic premise of each game and, and kids that can occupy hours of a kid's summer life, right? Maybe not right now because it's too hot outside. But sometimes life can seem like one giant game of tag, does it not? We're just running around. You know, some, we're just running around maybe aimlessly. Sometimes intentionally we, we know we have some purpose in our life, but we're just running around. We're trying to avoid disaster. We're trying to avoid setbacks. We're trying to avoid grief or discomfort, or we're even trying to avoid that person. You know what I mean by that person. We're seeking peace and safety and comfort. And maybe you find yourself in one of these categories in the game tag. You're just running around and you're like waiting to be tagged, looking over your shoulder. Or maybe you've just resigned yourself where you're just too slow and non-elusive. And so just, you know, you're just, you're always it. Maybe you find yourself in the category of being tagged unexpectedly. You're surprised at it. You've put great confidence in your speed and agility. And now you find yourself tag, but no matter what category, no matter where you find yourself, it, we, we all want the safety and security found in the base. We want that place in life where we can run to anytime, any place, and in any circumstance. We want that place that is a refuge from life's storms. We want the place that is, uh, that is where we can run to in those times where we can find help when we are groaning. If you've been journeying with us through the chapter here in Romans 8, it's taught us in recent weeks that the promise of glory is coming. We have a hope that awaits us, but while we wait, we are groaning and persevering, and we're not alone in the groaning and waiting, and a creation is doing so as well as we await the redemption of our bodies and the return of Christ. It's in those moments while we're waiting. Thankfully, God also gives us help. 
gives us the help of the Holy Spirit. Spirit who is praying for us on our behalf, praying sympathetically, groaning to, who's praying specifically for us according to the will of God. This is how God helps us in it. But he also helps us not only by giving us the Spirit who is praying for us, but also by giving us a truth to know and to love. A truth that is captured in this verse here that I'm going to read for us today. Just look at it so we can uh, set our minds on the Word of God here. Romans 8, 28. I want to read it for us so we can see what it is. It says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. This is God's Word for God's people. In your Bible, that verse isn't underlined or highlighted or however you indicate the importance in your Bible. Make sure this verse is highlighted, is indicated for you this morning. Now, we're just taking the one verse because it's so familiar, but also so profound. There's so much truth here in this verse, and we're going to unpack it over the next several minutes here. But as we, uh, if we were to sum it up here, what's contained in these verses, here's how we could sum up the central truth of the passage that this verse is teaching us today. And it is this. Write it down. It's in your notes. It's on the screen now. God's goodness and sovereignty is our safe haven. The base that we are looking for, the security, the refuge in life's storms, the help that we need is found in God's goodness and sovereignty. So let me say it again. God's goodness and sovereignty is our safe haven. See, we search for safety in all kinds of places and people, in government, in leaders, in family and friends, and we seek answers from various sources. We look online, we look to people, we search on our phone. But here's the biblical truth, redemption. Psalm 46, 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. God is, the Spirit is, that's from last week. But when it comes to His sovereignty and His goodness, listen to these words from Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king in Daniel 4, 35, speaking of God, he says this, He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand, nor say to him, what have you done? And of his goodness, Psalm 119, 68 proclaims this of God. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. And so I hope as we come to the passage, as we look closely at it now, that we share the same humble, teachable heart towards the Lord and his purposes this morning. And so if we're saying this is what's at the center, this is God's goodness and sovereignty, this is our safe haven, this is at the center of the passage, then how then do we live? How do we activate the truth in these things? How do we put this to work in our life? What does this mean for us daily right now in the moments that we find ourselves in? Well, here's the first point, the first takeaway to activate this truth. It is this, we must settle in our minds that God is good and sovereign. I say it again, settle in your mind that God is good and sovereign. If there's any sort of uncertainty about these things, let this verse uh, impress upon your mind that he is indeed good and sovereign. It's how the verse begins. Look at verse, uh, back to the verse here in verse 28. It says, and we know. Stated factor. Who's the we included in this? This Is it just Paul, the guy who's writing it, and the people with him, Timothy and Silas and others? 
It's all of us, is it not, church? It's we who believe, we who are love, uh, love God are called according to his purposes. More on that in a minute. But what's significant about this is it's coming here. It's in- Go back to verse 26, what we saw last week. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness for what? We do not know what to pray sometimes. Sometimes those moments in life, we don't know what to do. We don't know God's will. We don't know how to pray our way forward. But here's something that we do know. We do know, we do know that God is good and gracious. We know he is good and sovereign. But this isn't the the sum total of what we know about God. He said in verse 18 that we consider, he considers, which is like a resolved knowing, a settled fact in his mind that the greatness of glory far outweighs the severity of his suffering. We know this. We believe it. We have confidence in it. We know in verse 22, as he says, we know that creation is groaning also, that we are not alone in, the, in experiencing the hardships of this earth and the difficulty and the pain caused by sin. But the flow then of the passage is we know these things, but here are some things we don't know. We go from being confused about what God is doing to confident in the goodness and sovereignty of God. And then in verse 29, to conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so we may not know what God's will is in this moment, but we do know who he is and how he acts. For what is it, church? What, is it, uh, what are those moments that unsettle us? It's the confusing moments, right? It's the confusing moments of our life that unsettle us. The, the moments that we were praying for last week, those moments in our marriage, or with our kids, or in our workplace, or at the doctor's office, or in that relationship, the moments where we don't know what God is doing, where we don't know how to go, it is those moments that unsettle us. But it is in the unchanging character of God, His complete and, and, and forever goodness, and His complete control over all the affairs of our life that settles us. That settles us. See, God Himself is the safe haven. He is the refuge. He is our shelter. Why? Because he is the orchestrator, the conductor, the overseer, the mover, the originator, the all-powerful one over everything. For he holds it all in his hands and he controls all the movements of creation from the stars in the heavens and to the waves in the ocean and all the unsettling moments of your life. This is what he's getting at. This is what's at the center of the text. For we know some things. We know that all things work together for good. And so what do you think all things means? Is there some hidden meaning in the Greek here? No, it's all things. This is the boundary of the extent of God's control. He controls all things, really? Yes. Nothing is exempt. Nothing is left out. Nothing is beyond his reach. Nothing is unforeseen or surprising to the Lord. And this includes our suffering. It includes the hardships of our life, the suffering against and because of sin. It includes that the list of hardships that he will describe in later verses that we'll come to in a few weeks in like verse 35. These things like tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, are those under God's sovereign control? Absolutely. What about in verses 38 and 39? Death, life, angels, rulers, things uh, present, things to come, powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation. Guess what? under the sovereign control of God. 
includes suffering. It includes our salvation from the first moments of his foreknowing us to the end of his glory and everything in between. God is sovereign through it. And it is when we are experiencing the difficulties of life and our salvation is where we find safety in the sovereignty of God. Yes, even in the horrible things that God allows that he allows in our life. But let's be careful here. Let's be clear and not to say that God authors these things. He is not the author of them. While he allows them in our lives, he does not author them and that he originates them. James 1 says that God tempts no one to sin. 1 John 1, 5, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And yet, even in the hard things, even in the good things, in all of it, God is doing something good. All of life's experiences, from the horrible to the happy, are working together, working out for our good. And let's have just another moment of clarity here so we don't miss what this verse is saying. Because what it is not saying is that all things are good. The thing in your life that is causing uh, much pain, that is evil, the things that we read about on the news that make the headlines, those are, those are not good, they're evil. What the verse is getting at then is God in his, his glorious providence and his sovereignty over them all, he is orchestrating them so that the effect on your life and my life is for our benefit, for our spiritual good. Let us also be clear in what we find by the material possessions in which he's going to give us. In the abundant life through having a bunch of things and, or good feelings that we may have about uh, what's going on or in uh, advancements or promotions throughout life. He is not saying this, but what he is saying is good is our conformity to Jesus Christ. This is how he is at work. He is preparing us for glory. He is working all things that we might be foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. He is working all all of these things out so that we become more like Jesus Christ. To be clear here too, as things are working together, it is not as though they're just working together all on their own, like everything's just going to figure it out. But that God is the one at work taking the things, the hard and the good and all the bits and pieces of our life and baking them together for our good. Maybe it's helpful to picture your life like a pie. You love pie, right? Of course we love pie. Who doesn't love pie? I mean, I love pie. Maybe I love pie a little too much, but, uh, uh, but pie is great, right? Pie is good. Pie is like its own food group. Pie is in every food group. Pie is good no matter what. It's good for breakfast. It's good for lunch. It's good for dinner. It's good for a midnight snack and everywhere in between, right? Pies of all kinds. We multiply, we, you know, pie. It's true. You need a gluten-free crust. But even in that is under the goodness and sovereignty of God, sweetheart. But picture your life like a pie, because what comes together? Like, we love the end result that is so good and so delicious. But a pie is made up of, of a variety of ingredients. A variety of things. Some of the ingredients in themselves are good and delicious to the taste, especially like in fruit pies. The apples or the blueberries or whatever it might be are delicious to eat. But other ingredients, you who bake know this, other ingredients are, are horrific on their own. I mean, think of taking a spoonful of like baking soda or baking powder. I mean, that would probably literally make you vomit if you did so. Or a spoonful of, of flour. Or to just like grab the little bottle of vanilla and take a big swig of that. It's bitter. It's disgusting. 
bud in the hands of a master baker, folded together, mixed together at the right time in the right order, baked at the perfect temperature for the right amount of time, comes out golden brown and delicious. So too are the experiences in our life, how God is working them together, different ingredients all being put together. And even as it comes out, sometimes we have to wait in order to taste it because it is still too hot for us to dig into. But baked by the master baker, mm, it becomes good. It becomes good. There's a guy named Joseph who lived a long time ago, and he's written about in the book of Genesis. Familiar with Joseph? Joseph's life is one that's a, a phenomenal read. If, you've not, if you're unfamiliar with it, hit up Genesis 37, first book in your Bible, 37 through 50. And Joseph knows the highs and lows of life. He comes and he knows the, 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 the singular affection of his dad. But he also knows the painful betrayal of his brothers. He goes, he's sold into slavery. He's, he's then in slavery. He's uh, serving his master, trying to do so as a man of integrity, and yet he's falsely accused of adultery. He's thrown in prison, and there, even in prison, he's trying to be responsible and help others, and he helps uh, some uh, uh, get out and get released from prison, but he himself is forgotten. And not just forgotten for a night, but forgotten for years in prison. Until God and his providence releases him from prison, he comes to serve the king, uh, Pharaoh, the most powerful person in the whole world in, in those days, and he helps him out, and God places then Joseph in, a, uh, in an elevated position to where he leads the people through years of famine. And as God would have it later in life, his brothers come back into his life, and they are reconciled. But then their dad, who brought these brothers together, passes away. And as he dies, now the brother's like, oh man, now he's going to exact revenge. Forty years or so later, now he is going to get revenge on us for the horrible things that we did to him along the way. And look at these verses. They're on the screen here. So Genesis 50, 19 and 20. And they say this, but Joseph said to them, this is his brothers, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? I love that. Joseph is recognizing God's sovereignty. His mind is settled on the sovereignty of God. The problem is in our life, where we, where we get unsettled is we think we're in the place of God. In our own life, controlling the things that are happening in our life and wanting, and then when control is wrested from us, when we realize that we're, we're not as actually in the driver's seat as we think we are. We try to play the place of God in somebody else's life. Because we do want to get revenge. We're unsatisfied with God's timing or what he's been doing. We're frustrated by the things that they've done. And we put ourselves in the place of God. Joseph's mind was settled. Settled on the sovereignty of God. For you, you meant evil against me. Did what his brothers do? Was that evil? Absolutely. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph's mind was settled in God's goodness and his sovereignty, even through it all, over decades. Decades, y'all. Don't lose the scope of time here. Through this time, God was working it all out, not only so that Joseph would be kept alive, and not only so his brothers, but a whole family, a whole nation of people would be kept alive through years of famine, through years of difficulty, and brought to safety. 
We too must settle this in our mind that God is both sovereign and good. And this is, this is a marriage. This is something that goes together in these verses and in our understanding of the character and work, the person and work of who our God is. Because if we get this wrong or we try to subtract things, then maybe we, our, our view of God is, is like this. Look at this on the screen here. See, sometimes if we, we, we might believe that God is good, but he's not sovereign. What does that make him? Just like a nice grandpa, right? Somebody has great intentions who wants to bless the socks off his family members, but has not the means to do it. Sometimes we might think God is sovereign, but he's not good. If he has control, but we can't trust his intentions or his heart towards us, it makes him just an evil dictator, a tyrant. He cannot be trusted. His motives or intentions cannot be. But if he is both good and sovereign, good in all he does, good in his character, good to the core and uncorruptible, blameless and pure, and he is in control over everything, what does that make him? The God of the Bible. The God who we find revealed in the scriptures. The God who saves us. And this church, believing this about our God, is our comfort, is our safe haven. See, knowing what we do about our own sinfulness, knowing what we do about the brokenness of the world in which we live and the corruption that has been unleashed since the time of Adam and Eve and the hopelessness that uh, is, is, exists uh, uh, for those who don't know Christ. See, the goodness and the sovereignty of God to save us, to make things work out for our good, should really what? It should cause us to burst forth with greater love and praise and adoration for God. So when we realize, when we know this, when these things are settled, then it is not just a state of mind, but it then moves us forward. It, it catalyzes forward. It praises us and makes us walk forward in obedience with love for the Lord, which is really the second takeaway. We're going to put this truth to work. If we're going to activate it, then here's, here's the second point, to love God and his purposes. Not only be settled on these things in your mind, but also loving God and his purposes. And I know that's so simple. Some of you are like, boy, that's all you have for us today? Like you're telling me just to love God and his purposes? Well, yeah. It is so simple, yet it is so profound because it is the foundation of following God, is it not? When the Pharisees approached Christ and they're, trying, they're telling him, what's the greatest commandment? Trying to get him to sum it all up, right? Trying to trap him in it. What does Jesus tell him? What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God, right? with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, with everything in you, in your mind and how you, how you think about God and the affections of your heart, with your very soul that motivates you, with your strength, your activity of your body, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it to what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And it's so simple, and yet it's with a bit of a reflection. This is so profound, especially when it comes to the, to the verse here, because he, he begins by saying, and we know, and then there's some like bookends as to who this applies to. And in the center of it is all things work together for good, but then on, the others, on either side, it's like it, it, it encases the central truth here. Those who love God and are called according to his purposes. And, and, and this is really profound, especially if you're familiar with the flow of the book of Romans. Because all throughout Romans, it's, it's been about faith. It's been about believing God and then obeying God along the way. Only like really at the beginning, he's, in Romans 1.7, he refers to the Roman church, to the believers there as those loved by God. 
And so we might read this and, and expect if we were going through in the flow, and we know that for those who believe God, all things work together for good. And that's not what he says. It's like shocks us a little bit. If we're reading the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, it would be different because there he refers to believers as those who love God over and over and over. And you get the, the, ending, ver or in the ending chapter in ver chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, and he talks about those who do not love God as unbelievers here. And yet it's so important because what is he bringing before us? That in life's hardships, when we don't know what to do, when we're being called to sacrifice something, when our commitment to loving the Lord and when faith is having to be lived out, we are marked by our love. A love that is willing to sacrifice. A love that does not give up. A love that is unconditional for the things of the Lord. He's telling us, like, it's, it's about obeying God. It's about putting sin to death. Yet here he's like, no, it's here. It's a heart that loves God. A mind that is confident in his sovereignty. And so when we think of the things of God, his sovereignty, you know, when people ask me, like, what do you think about the doctrines of grace? My first response is, I love it. I, I, I love them. Because I know the, 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 the depth of depravity. I would take the unconditional love of God to save me and keep me to the end. And I think you've experienced this as well. The love of God that's willing to sacrifice the love of God that is our comfort when it's hard. See, it's in suffering. It's in those moments of confusion when the things that we love the most are exposed, when our toys are, are, are being threatened, when, the, the, when our, our promotion, when our titles are being taken away, when the stuff that we love uh, is, is being removed or threatened. It's like, okay, well, what do we love most? Are things, our possessions, or do we love the glory of God? Do we trust his sovereignty? Are we believing that his purposes are better throughout this? I know you've experienced it. I've experienced it. We're in those moments. Moments where you have to give the green light to DNR, your day-old daughter. Moments in, in life where you get the 3 a.m. phone calls of tragic news. The unexpected meeting that happens at work. The ongoing silence and from your wayward kids. It's in those moments, in those moments, where those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, believe these things, where we're settled in it. Where it's a love that is, that, that, that is willing to sacrifice, that is believing there is something greater happening in all of this. And this is, this is true love. This is true love. It's love, love for the Lord. It's love for other people. My wife Erin and I, we do premarital counseling and done it often over the years. And one of the things that we tell in premarital, and even just dating couples, you may have even, some of you in here have heard us say this, but how you know you found the right one, the one to marry, to do life with, is the person that you can walk through hardship, you can have conflict with, you can suffer through things, you can get hard news, and you still love them at the end of it. Anybody can have fun with anybody, right? For the most part. Some people maybe are hard to have fun with. But you know, when you've walked through something, you've had conflict and you're willing to forgive. You're willing, even in the moments of confusion and hurt or whatever it might be, and love brings you back. Love keeps you going. Love keeps you hand in hand. This is what Christ displayed for us. Romans 5, it talks about uh, here at the gospel where Christ displayed the greatest sacrifice, where he laid down his life that we might be saved. 
Not when we were pursuing him, not when we were, had everything figured out, but when we hated him and were his enemies, when we were weak and dead in our sin, it was then that Christ died for us. It is then that he loved us that we might be saved. It's a love that I pray you would know. And even today, maybe you don't know Christ. Maybe you're confused. Maybe you're angry. And yet, by God's Spirit, even this morning, you're seeing how your sin has offended God. Your sin has made a mess of your life and how Christ has paid the way. Paid it all. Paid it all. As we sung earlier, that you might be saved. He's called you to himself. And not just in this like one moment, long time ago, called us to salvation so that you could live however you want, but he's called you to his purposes. He's called you now to a life that's different. Calling you to himself in his ways, believing that he is now sovereign over your life. See, the hope that we have in these verses, that all things are working together for good, are encased in this, these, these descriptions of believers for a reason. So if you don't know Christ, you don't have this hope. You don't have this confidence that all things are working out for good. Actually, the culmination of it is, is, is severe. It's hell. Eternal separation from Christ. For those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, you have this hope now and also for eternity. And that's worth believing in, is it not? It's worth believing. It's the best news ever. It's the best news ever. And it gives great hope and security and comfort in this life even now. What does it mean that God calls us according to his purposes? What is this idea of called here? Thinking about that? See, what he's not getting at is the way that we oftentimes use called. Like, God's calling me to marry this person. God's calling me to move into this, uh, this neighborhood. God's calling me to go to Africa. Or God's calling me. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the gospel call. He's talking about how God calls people to himself, how he calls you out of death into life, as in the same way they called Lazarus out of the grave to himself, so he does in our salvation. In the same way that God called a creation into existence, God calls into the things the existence that things do not exist, namely our faith. In the same way he creates out of nothing, is faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what he's calling us into. And, and, and that comes then with a purpose. There, and really two purposes here. The eternal purposes that we've seen all along. The hope of heaven that we have. God's calling us to a holy calling and eternity with him. And working out all things in between. Moving towards that end. But the things in between are really where we get hung up. God, what's your purpose in this? Well, we know it's good. But what is he doing? Ultimately, his earthly purpose is to conform you to Jesus Christ. To make you more like Christ, more dependent like Jesus was. That's really the epitome of conformity. Jesus himself was completely dependent upon the Father and the Spirit as he's living his life. And so he is doing this good work in us through the, the events of our lives. He is bringing us to a, a greater experience of what Christ is doing in our lives. Sometimes the events as instruments aren't always pleasant, are they? Sometimes as instruments are hammers that bruise us and saws that cut things out. Other times it's like sandpaper that scuffs us up and then smooths it out. 
or cloths that polish it and make it shine for Jesus Christ, but always with a grand purpose, sometimes working in the visible ways that we see and other times in the hidden, obscure ways, but we can be confident that there is a purpose for every situation you are in. Even if your home is being delayed and the move-in date keeps getting moved back, even if supply chain issues are moving, continuing to move back and you don't know, even whatever it might be, even as pregnancy is hard, as kids are wayward and parenting is difficult and marriage is difficult, whatever it is, we can trust that God is doing something purposeful through it. And it's a purpose to love him for and not be skeptical about or resistant towards. But one in which we can love him and thank him for Around our dinner table earlier this week, we were talking about our kids about, uh, in a similar way about how to give thanks in every circumstance. Remember this discussion, kiddos? Remember we were talking about the will of God? Apparently not. Um, maybe after I give some details and explain it a little more, they'll remember. We were talking about, remember last week, uh, we were talking about the verses in 1 Thessalonians, to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and in everything... Give thanks, for this is the will of God. And so we're just having a discussion. This is the things we talk about at our table about, well, how do we give thanks when things are hard? It says in every circumstance, we're like, well, what about this? And last week, my son had hurt his wrist. And so we're talking like, how can we give thanks when we hurt our wrist? And we're trying to go and rack our brains and all that. And we're like, well, some of the answers we came up with were, well, we can give thanks that it's not broken. Right? It was a sprain or whatever it was. We thanks that it wasn't worse than it could have been. We were able to give thanks for the friends that God had put in our life, friends who are physical therapists who would come and wrap it and put like the fancy tape on it in order to, uh, to, 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 you know, to help uh, healing. We can thank God for the ways that he has designed our body to heal in those ways. Even in the hardship, even when it's hard. And these things are related here. How can we love God? How can we thank Him and see the good even when it's hard? Well, I don't have an exhaustive list for you, but I have seven of them. Seven E's that Michael often uses in his counseling. Maybe uh, these have already been a blessing to you. Maybe he's used it. I put them here on the screen. You can take a picture or try to write them down all furiously here. But, you know, how does, what is God's purposes? Well, he often wants to use our hardships in these ways. Here's the first one. To enhance our relationship with him. See, we love God. How does he work it all out? Well, oftentimes when we are in difficulty, as we're walking through trials, we become more aware of God and his uh, existence and his help and our dependence on him. As I said, I think this is the epitome of conformity to Christ. It's our dependency on him and hardships, trials, difficulties show us that. They also uh, are used so that we can experience a measure of Christ's sufferings. And this has been gifted to us. We loved the gift of, of our salvation, but also to experience in his sufferings is a gift from God. He was the prophesied suffering Savior. We too are told to expect it in this life. And so God helps us experience what it means to walk with Christ. He does it also to expose our remaining sin. Now we've been set free from sin, so it no longer reigns over us as our king. Christ is our king. We hail him as king. But in the midst of this life, even now, God uses trials. He uses hardship to expose the areas of sin that are remaining in us and to make us more aware of it. 
God is so gracious. He's so merciful. He doesn't just like we get saved and he doesn't just heap on the thousands of ways in which we are still full of sin. Slowly and patiently all throughout our life, he is sanding it away. He is bringing things to life. He uses things like relationships and marriage and hardships and uh, our Bible and all that to expose us for us. Sometimes we can, uh, you know, we can see uh, the sin in somebody else's life far easier than they can, right? Especially in marriage. And my wife can see it all in, in me. This is God's grace to her where she doesn't just expose it all the time or just be beating me up with it. Or she can live even under the goodness and sovereignty of God that he is at work in me and will bring it to light as uh, in his good timing, in his good ways, and often through her lips. He uses community to do this. He uses hardship to expose our sin. How else does he do use hardships? Well, he uses it to exhibit Christ's work in us. Oftentimes as we're walking through these things or we're experiencing uh, hardships collectively within the workplace or uh, in our street or in our nation or whatever it might be, he got to use using this so that we would be more hopeful we would be more unafraid in our witness to the people around us. That we can talk about and give defense for the hope that we have in Christ. He uses it to, uh, to trials in our life and hardships in our life to engage us more actively in the body of Christ. See, in, in our suffering, in our difficulties, it draws us closer. At least it should, it should draw us closer to the community that God has given us. We're prone to, to wander. We're bent to just want to flee and to, to hide when things get hard. And yet that's the precise time where we need to lean into the people that God has put in our life. He's put in your small group. He's put on your ministry team because they are his hands and feet. But he also uses hardships in our life so that we can to equip us for wiser, more compassionate uh, uh, love for others ministry to others. We're our suffering. We, the, as we walk through it, we see his goodness. We see his sovereignty. We know we're not alone in this. Others are walking through it. And so we can be a light for them. We can be a help to them. And lastly, he uses it to elevate our hope for heaven. What we've seen all through uh, the, these verses here in, in Romans chapter 8, that our trials, the severity of suffering really creates a dissatisfaction in us for the things of this earth. And sometimes we're putting too much of our hope in it. Sometimes we're putting too much of our uh, stock in this thing here on earth. And as it's uh, moved away or as it's threatened or as it's taken uh, out of our life, God is elevating our hope for heaven and showing us where true eternal satisfaction lies in eternity with Christ. And now again, this isn't an exhaustive list. There's a infinite purposes that God is working out in our life under his goodness, under his sovereignty, but hopefully some helpful categories for you to settle your mind, to increase your love for him, to help you see that God is at work in you and through you to turn the confusion about the things in your life into confidence in God and conformity to Christ. See, there's no bad news. There's no tragic events, no executive order or SCOTUS ruling or unexpected knock at the door or hurtful words that can threaten the goodness and sovereignty of God. You're safe there. You're safe within the walls. You can seek shelter under his person and his work, all who love God and has been, have been called by him. And that's a reason to praise God for, isn't it? It's a reason also for us to pray. Would you bow your heads and let's come to the Lord in these moments. God in heaven, here we are. 
You see us now. You see where we're at. And Lord, even more so, you know the circumstances in our life. You have orchestrated that we would be in the midst of them. But we just come before you acknowledging them, acknowledging this is hard, Lord. I'm confused about this. I don't know what to pray in this situation. And even as we give our complaints to you, God, as we tell you about them, we're asking you, God, would you convince our minds right now that you are good and sovereign? Let us not doubt it. Let us not be distracted by it. Let us not distill it down to mean something less than it means. God, but convince us, settle our minds in it right now that you are good and you are sovereign. Would you increase our love for you today, God? We would indeed love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And help us, God. Help us see your purposes. It was just a glimpse of what you're doing through it. Show us, help us understand. Let us see. God, please, we ask by faith. We're asking for help. Even if we can't, we'll still praise you. Even if it's too much or too heavy for us to carry, we trust you. We exalt you over it all. Christ, be exalted in our minds, be exalted in our hearts, for it is the proper place that you occupy. We love you. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.